Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed him, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this morning. God, we pray for Ryan as he preaches. God, would, the spirit, would your spirit fill this room, Lord? We thank you just for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We love you. Pray all this in your son's name. We've been working our way through a book of the Bible called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And it's really the story of how the church began. When Jesus promised the Holy Spirit and then sent the Holy Spirit, what did the Holy Spirit do through the church? And this is where we're picking up here uh, in Acts 17 as this mission has gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And now it's kind of reaching out to the ends of the earth. It's, it's, it's in Greece now when we look in this, this story. And so, um, um, you know, I, I also like to note this, uh, it, we're going to be in this series for probably another five or six weeks, and then we're going to be transitioning into a vision series for the church, so I'm looking forward to getting us uh, into that. And, and this passage that we're looking at today is one of the most unique passages in uh, the book of Acts, and uh, it has to do with how the gospel meets us in uh, our idolatry, um, and some would even say that the, the whole Bible is aimed at uprooting idolatry uh, in the lives of God's people. It's, it's the second commandment uh, behind 
you know, love God with all you've got. It's, it's don't make any graven images. And so uh, it's really interesting. So let's, let's, as we dig into this, let's just define what idolatry is because it's kind of a, sometimes we think, oh, we don't really deal with that, but I just want to define it in terms that will be helpful for us. So what is idolatry? It's simply this. It's depending upon empty promises for eternal satisfaction. Depending upon empty promises for eternal satisfaction. Well, how do we know if something is an empty promise? The scriptures say that all of the promises of God find their yes in, in Him, in Jesus. So any, 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 anything that's an empty promise is a promise that doesn't find its end in Jesus. Uh, so when we, when, we, when we define idolatry like that, um, what we discover is that it puts us all on the hook. Uh, idolatry says that we can find something or someone outside of Jesus that will give us the ultimate satisfaction that our hearts desire. But, but the gospel, the good news about Jesus, says that we were created by God and for God and only in Him will we find that satisfaction. I'm reminded of what... Uh, the church father Augustine said, um, he said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. That's, there's, truer words have not been spoken. It's, it's so true. So, um, of course, you know, when we hear this today, our, our hearts are tempted to say, uh, man, it must be really bad to struggle with that. Right? right that's kind of what we think about. We, oh, yeah, well, I'm not like that guy, at least. Um, I, I want to share a story of two guys that were in the 1924 Olympics uh, as runners, as sprinters, uh, and, and their, their approach to life. It, 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 was, uh, it was documented uh, uh, in a film called Chariots of Fire in 1981. And, and it's basically this, this story uh, about these two runners. One is, his name is Eric Liddell. The other is, is Harold Abrams. And the, the story is not only about the competitive nature of these two runners, and they were very competitive, uh, but the story reveals a deeper loyalty and motivation as to why the guys ran. And, and as you hear why these guys ran, um, I want you to consider the question in your own heart, why do you run? Not physically speaking, because all of us don't run, some of us do, those crazy people in here, um, I'm just kidding. I like, I like running sometimes, just not very often. Um, why do you run the race of life? Why do you chase after what you chase after? So consider that. So, so here's the two approaches. They're asked, both of these runners are asked the question, why do you run? What is it that makes you run? I'll start with Harold Abrams. He was a, he was a Jewish guy, and he said this. He said, I'm more of an addict. I just wish I had contentment. I'm, I'm 24, and I've never known it. He'd never known what it'd be like to be a 24-year-old, is what he was saying. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes, and I'll look down that corridor four feet wide, and with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Will I justify my whole existence in this 10-second sprint as the world is watching. Will I find what I'm looking for? And as Abrams went on in his life, it became clear that he struggled. As he, as he achieved more and more success in what he was chasing, he was 
less and less certain about the fact that it would give him what he was actually looking for. Now, let's listen to Eric Liddell's approach. And there was this whole kind of thing that happened because the race was on a Sunday. I'm not going to get into all that, but I just want you to hear how he answers the question, why do you run? He says this, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you see the difference in the way that the two men approached the race? One man, Abrams, found the end in the race. The other man, Liddell, found God's pleasure as he ran because of how God made him. It was a gift to be stewarded from God. Now when we get to the end of the race that we're running, this race of life, this journey that we're on, will we get to the end and realize that we've been in the wrong lane all along? We've been running the wrong race. Or will we see the life that God has given us as a life to be stewarded in the name of Jesus? And whatever it is that we're doing, bringing Him glory and feeling His pleasure upon our lives as we run the race that God sets before us, looking to Jesus. So as we, as we turn to Acts 17, I want you to keep those two trajectories in mind. Because I think they describe a tension that all of us feel every single day. Now when Acts, in Acts 17, when, when Paul strolls up, when he rolls up into the city uh, of, of Athens, um, what he sees seems so different to what he's seen in the past. This is a, a, a polytheistic religious people. There's idols all over the city. And, and at, first at first glance, he would have been tempted to kind of write these people off, but he does just the opposite. See, he sees himself as just the same as these other people, these Athenians in Greece. He sees himself as the same, a man with idols trying to find his way to God. And you, you hear him say that as he addresses them because he says, he says something along the lines when he's addressing the Areopagus that, that, that we're all searching and seeking and trying to feel and find our way to God and everyone on the face of the planet is trying to do that. He sees himself as just the same. So, so the big idea, church, of where I want to go today with Acts 17 is this. Jesus provides a better life to live than the one our mind creates. Jesus provides a better life to live than the one our life, our, that our mind creates. Because that's what an idol is. It's something that's crafted in our minds. And we're tempted to bow down and worship it because we think it'll give us what we're looking for. So I want to back up on Paul's life a little bit here. And, 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 and show to you the reality that when Paul walked into Acts 17, he wasn't still an idolater the same way that the folks in Athens, Greece were. No, he, he'd been changed by God. He had met God and God had begun to uproot and dismantle the things that he had built his life upon. We read in, in places where Paul shares his story that uh, when he shares his story throughout the book of Acts in front of the different groups that he gets in front of, the, one of the first things that he mentions is his former life. Hey, here's where God met me. He met me in the midst of idol worship, but it was the trickiest idol worship of all because it was religious idol worship. I was passionate about persecuting followers of the way. 
because they posed a threat to the God that I was following in my Judaism. So the first thing, church, that we got to do as we, as we think about this subject of idolatry is we got to identify idolatry. We've got to learn to, by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, to identify our own idols in our heart. Um, so I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 1. Uh, verses 18 through 25. This is, this is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to, to the people of Rome and the, the church in, in Rome, which would have been really to the end of the world in Paul's mind. In the world's mind at this time, the, the buck stopped with Rome. The gospel had to get to Rome in Paul's mind. And, and, he, and, he, and he develops this kind of systematic treatise of theology. And where does he start? Idolatry. We've got to start with idolatry, he says, before we can before we can move any further into what God's plan and purpose is for our life. So here's what he said in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely the, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, now before I read this next part, I, w- I want you to know something. Um, he's, he's describing what our nature is. He has been here. You know, that, that we're all prone to turn to things that have been created by God instead of God for worship. Like that is the default position when you come out of the box. We're all prone to worship things. So you're struggling with this temptation with how do you manage the work-life balance? You're prone to worship your job. You're struggling with, with this tension of, of how do I raise my kids? You're prone to worship your kids. You, you're going to drift that way. But God's grace and his love redirect us to sinner. But, but here's what he says about this. Hear, hear the grace of God here. Because th- this is scary that, that God could just let us go our own way. God could just let you run the wrong race. He would be perfectly just. Perfectly loving to just let you go your own way. L- listen to what he says. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God could just give us up, but thank the Lord that's not where the book of Romans ends. Amen? He could just give us up, Whatever it is, that tension that you struggle with is, that tension of worship, that competition that you feel in your heart, where your heart leans when no one's looking, where your, where your thoughts go whenever you're alone, he could just give you up to that. 
but he doesn't. And we have got to be wise in how we think about our idolatry because the enemy wants to suppress the thought in your mind that you even struggle. That's what he wants to do. He wants you to think that you're good to go and, you know, don't ask, don't tell. We're, we're, you know, no one has to know about this. But, but the problem is that the scriptures say that when Jesus returns, everything will be exposed. Not just the things that you did, but the things that you thought. And so, therefore, our thought life becomes just, just as much as a priority in our lives as the things that we actually do. And he says we're prone to suppress the truth. So, you know, Tim Keller has written a book called Counterfeit Gods, and I picked it up again this week, and it is just an absolutely incredible work. And he talks all about this. If you've got some time, pick that book up and read it. I'm going to just read to you some of the, the idols that he's, that he's kind of brought up and I think give language and thought to helping us identify our idols. Relational idols. This is the first one. Relational, these are relational structures that are dysfunctional and often are in the form of dysfunctional family systems that might manifest themselves in codependency. Or on the other end of the spectrum, living our lives through our children. Relational idols. Maybe you're codependent. You can't get away from this person. Your life has to be lived through them. You've got to be with them all the time. Uh, he also says, you know, what about political idols? So how do you know if you have a political idol? A political idol says this. If blank, name the political strategy, system, or candidate. If, if blank is the fix for the world you've got a political idol. If it's the right, if it's the left, if it's this person, if it's this system, you've got a political idol. Sexual idols. These are idols that, 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 that make an empty promise of true intimacy and fulfillment in an extra-biblical way. Now, uh, this could be through sexual addiction, such as pornography. This could uh, be in an, an ideal about physical beauty in yourself or in others, something that you've got to have to find fulfillment. My wife or my husband has to look like this, or I have to have this type of appearance to live. I have to have this type of appearance to find approval. You might have a sexual idol, racial idols. If, if my country, my race, my ethnic pride supersedes the love for any neighbor, I have a racial idol. You can usually detect this idol through the words them or those people when you think about others. That, at least that's the way it is in my heart. When I think about, oh, those people or, or them. That, that's usually a trail that leads you to some type of idolatry that you've got around maybe an idea of race. Or, or he talks about this idea of deep idols. Now these are more postures of the heart than specific things. So maybe you've got a power or control idol that says this, life is only worth living if I have the power to influence or to control the situation over myself or this person. You've got a control idol. The sovereignty of God is something that terrifies you because it means that you're not in control. Maybe you've got an approval idol. So life is only worth living if I have the acceptance or love of this person or these people. Or maybe you've got a comfort idol. If my lifestyle isn't this way, it's not worth living. You're getting the picture. All of us were kind of pricked and poked by something I just said. And it didn't feel too good. That's because we have idolatrous postures in our hearts. 
John Calvin once said this. He says, you know, he, he wrote such great theology for us. Uh, and, and he says this, the human heart is an idle factory. So, so picture the assembly line running in your heart and your mind, crafting all of these idols. That's what our hearts are prone to. So now, so now that you've got the baseline of what Paul understood about idolatry and, and how it lived itself out in his life, let's talk about Acts 17. Let's talk about pursuing idolaters. Uh, because when Paul rolls up into Athens, God had done a work in his life. He'd done a deep work in his life. And God, one of the things we need to just notice is that God pursues us so that we can pursue others in their idolatry. So uh, let's read Acts 17, verse 16. If you've got a Bible, flip it, flip it open uh, there. The first thing that we notice about Paul's pursuit of idolaters is this idea of being grieved or provoked in his spirit as he saw the struggle that others were going through. The first thought for Paul was not judgment. How can y'all be living this way? No. Because someone who has the first thought of judgment is a person who doesn't see themselves as they are. No, no, no. Paul's first thought was empathy. He was just burdened by the things that these Athenians were going through. Now listen to Acts 17, 16. Now, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for the other disciples to come up who were in Berea, his spirit was provoked within them. Listen to this. As he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with them. So how did Paul respond? Well, first we see that his heart was provoked. His heart was touched. His heart was grieved as he saw the burden that these new friends in Athens were bearing and their approach to God. He was burdened by that. His heart was, was, was provoked. Let me ask you this. Is your heart grieved when you think about the lost people in your life? The lost people in our community, in our city? Because... That's what the work of the Holy Spirit has come to do in us. And the Scriptures talk about this idea that, you know, we've got judgment or we've got empathy, right? Those are kind of the two tracks that we can run on. A heart that immediately jumps to judgment is a heart that's unaware of its own condition and, and uh, fragileness. But a heart that leads with empathy is a heart that understands what it means to be human. And that's the work that Jesus had done in Paul. It's the work that Jesus is doing in his people here at New City. And so he begins to pursue them. So his, his heart is grieved. But because his heart was grieved and provoked, he was able to see the idols. Now that's the thing. When, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life and he touches you, you're able to see things that you couldn't see before. Remember what we said about what it means to be lost? It means that we're running with a blindfold. So instead of running with the blindfold, the Holy Spirit takes the blindfold off, we repent and we begin to come back to God and we're able to see the world through a different lens for ourselves and for others. We see the things that are trying to take prominence in our hearts. We see the throne of our life and we see other things vying for that position in our lives. It's one of the things God does. You begin to see your idolatry. See the empty promises that you're trusting in for ultimate satisfaction. And he says that 
His spirit within him was provoked. And, 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 and that, that's this idea that there's a human spirit and then there's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come into our lives to turn our human spirit, <laughs> to turn our human spirit into something that looks more like Jesus than it did before. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What's that mean? He convinces our spirit that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit was convincing Paul when he walked into Athens that there was idolatry in the city and that, the, that Jesus could do something about it. And that he was going to use Paul to do that if he'd be open to what God might do through his life. The question is, are you open to His Spirit bearing witness to your spirit in the community that you live in, in the community that you work in, in the neighborhood that you spend time in, in the circles of friends that you have influence on? Are you open to the Holy Spirit Bearing witness with your spirit that there's another way to live. Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, you have empathy and you can see things that you couldn't see before. I was, um, I was touched uh, last night as I was reading the news and I was reading about the, the Charlottesville riot. You know, it's a year later after that happened and the, and the tragedy that took place there in the uh, the idolatry that was on display there, um, and and I read this just really touching story, and it was it was an interview with this guy that was a former KKK Klan member, and um, <clears throat> he had gotten to this place in his life seven months after the Charlottesville thing that he realized he was chasing an empty promise. Man, it's clear to all of us in here, but when you're in the middle of it, it's not as clear. It was clear to him he was chasing this empty promise. And so he ends up somehow meeting this African-American Christian. Now, he didn't know it at the time, but this guy was a pastor. And so this guy says, hey, why don't you come to church? I guess the, the, the former Klan member had somehow opened himself up, and, and he's talking to this African-American guy, which is a miracle in and of itself. And then he and his fiance end up going to the church. Guys, long story short, the guy ends up getting saved and baptized in that church, and now he's a member of an all-African-American church. Do you see what God can do? How He can turn the world upside down when the Holy Spirit comes upon our hearts and uproots idolatry. But that, that African-American pastor had to be pretty darn bold, didn't he? It would be pretty darn bold to extend an invitation. I mean, what if this guy would have blown up on his church? It would be pretty bold. He had to see. He had to have empathy. And that's what God began to do through his life. Let's, get, let's continue going here. So you got to pursue. So what would we see Paul do in Acts 17, verses 22 through 28? We see him begin to pursue the Athenians in their lostness, in their idolatry. And, and as, he, as he pursues them, uh, his, his heart is grieved, and his heart is for them. Um, and, and, and what does he do? He, 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 he ends up getting um, in front of the Areopagus, which is this group of 30 or so men that would sit around and they would weigh new ideas that would come into the, the think tank of, of, of Athens, right? And so these guys here... Paul preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and meanwhile, he's just waiting on his bros to come up from Berea, and he just kind of, you know, starts kind of piddling around in the city, preaching the gospel here and there, and, and all of a sudden, they're like, hey, man, we haven't heard this stuff. You're preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. We got to get you up to the next level. You got to go meet in front of the Areopagus. So they get this meeting 
for him there, and, and he shows up. And when he stands in front of the Areopagus, he has this, he has this invitation to share what he believes. And so the Scriptures say this in 17.22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, we would see that as kind of a knock. That was a very, uh, that was a compliment to these guys, though. You're very religious. Like, way to go. Like, you guys are at least chasing God, right? You're trying to find your way uh, to God. And then he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, it's like 30,000 like idols in Athens at this time. And I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So you've got all these gods that are in control of all of these different things because none of them are omniscient and omnipresent and all this kind of stuff. So you've got all these different gods. But you've got this one kind of junk drawer God. Hey, just in case there's another way, we've got the unknown God over there. We're just going to make sure we're covered. And, and so Paul sees a seam. He sees a seam to make Jesus known in the middle of all of this idolatry. And he says, hey, I just want to tell you about that unknown God that I know. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in these idols that you've made, that you've crafted. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting one of the Athenian authors. And then he also says, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. He begins to engage the culture, but Listen, just, just as an aside here. He has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Think about the implication of that statement for your life. Are you just passing through right now? Is this just a season, just a stopover for your life? Lawrenceville being here at New City this morning? Or maybe you've been here and you couldn't imagine going anywhere else? You do not dictate that. It was set in place in eternity past that you would be in Richard's Middle School this morning. That you would live in the neighborhood or the apartment that you live in. That you would encounter the people that you're going to encounter as you leave the school this morning. He has determined it all. Now we have freedom within that, sure. But there is no accident going on in your life right now. You can, you can, you can bet the farm on that. There's, there's nothing accidental about your life. Now, if there was nothing accidental about your life and everything had purpose, how would that change the way that you live today? How would that change the way that you engage with the people that God has put in your life? How would that change the way that you engage the Lord? I think it changes things when we know that God is in control of all that. It gives us comfort. It gives us peace. So we begin to see Paul here contextualize the gospel. What do I mean by that? He takes what he knows about Jesus. 
He takes his experience, the witness that he has about Jesus, and he takes the people that he's engaging, and he puts them together and says, how can I help make this message land as best as I can? And the Holy Spirit leads him in there. That's what it means to contextualize. So it, it means what you know about Jesus, what he's done in your life, and what you know about the people that he's called you to. Contextualizing the gospel. There's one gospel but there are many forms of how to deliver that gospel. Make sense? So, so here's what he, here's what he, here's what, here's some approaches that we could take. Let me say that. Um, he could have said this, you know, hey, you're, you're right to try to find God. That, that's great that you're doing that. Um, Paul could have come up and said, hey, he could have taken the subculture approach, okay? And the subculture approach uh, says this. You know, we've got some really good Christian poets and some, and some books that we could pass along to you guys to kind of get your theology straight. I mean, you guys are kind of, you're kind of out there. Um, you could come and check those out. You could kind of come into our, our clique and our group, and, and, and we could kind of straighten you out a little bit, and we could, we could love on you a little bit, uh, and, and, and then, then you could maybe pursue God. He, he could have taken that approach. Now, I'm not knocking authors that are Christians that write books, okay? I'm, I'm not knocking that, but what I'm saying is so often we think that this Christian subculture approach is the way that we're called to engage culture. That's not what we see in Acts 17. No, 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 no. That's not what we see. I, I, you know, there's this author, or there's this um, songwriter named John Foreman, uh, and he, he said something a few years ago. He said, anytime that you attach the word Christian to anything other than a person, it's a marketing term. Right? Ow! But Paul seems to be saying this here. No, he doesn't say, hey, you know, let, let me give you some of my authors, and, and then maybe you can kind of come along. No, he says, let me redeem what's misdirected in your culture and show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. You see the approach, how it's different? We, we could also take this approach where we say God is anti-culture. This approach might look like this. <clears throat> You know, the, the Christian brothers were back in Berea. Paul, I cannot believe you were in Athens. Do you know how dirty that city is, boy? Come out here to the, to the hills of Macedonia, you, you uh, polytheistic people of Athens. Come out here to the, the hills of Macedonia. I've got this great monastery out here. We could really get you straightened out. He doesn't take that anti-culture approach. No, instead he takes this countercultural approach. The approach that, that the church he has called New City Church to take, where we look at what God is doing in our midst and we show how Jesus fulfills it all. He, he, he does this, he commends them for being interested in spiritual things and he connects what is disconnected in their pursuit. He says, you're right to look for God, but guess what? You can't make him on your own. You can't find him on your own. You're blind. You're chasing the wrong things. You're right to look for God, but let me tell you about the God that you're looking for. You've got to have some relational capital. Francis Schaeffer once said, um, he was a, just a renowned pastor, writer, uh, phenomenal guy. He said, you know, if I had an hour to share the gospel with someone, someone asked him, hey, Francis, if you had an hour to share the gospel with someone, what would you do? And he sat there and he thought about it for a second. He said, if I had an hour to share the gospel with someone, here's what I'd do. For the first 55 minutes, I would listen to their story 
And then I might actually have something to say to them in the last five minutes. You see the difference in the approach. The book of James talks about this idea of being quick to listen and slow to speak. So much of our approach to the people in our culture is let's just go and tell them what they need to know. And we forget that God's called us to love. To love neighbor as self. And a lot of times loving neighbor as self is listening first, speaking in response to that. It's the gentle heart and nature of Jesus. So here's my question. We'll see how this goes here. If Paul were to walk down the streets, Perry Street in downtown Lawrenceville this week, and he were to observe what's going on in our community, he put his ear to the ground, what song would he hear? Take a listen to this. I'm a man, come round. No, no, nothing can break, no, nothing can break me down. I'm the man, come round. No, no, nothing can break. So that is a song by The Killers, a Mormon rock band. How about that? Here's the deal. Their ear is to the ground. And this is a parody song, you know, kind of, kind of caricaturizing what American culture is like. And it's pretty spot on, isn't it? It's kind of what everybody's going after in our country. It's kind of why people move to our country to chase this empty promise. I mean, what is, what is, what is the anti-promise? says, I'm the man. I can't be broken down. You know, I'm strong. I'm independent. I can make this thing happen on my own. And I know this because I got gas in the tank. I got money in the bank. I got a household name. I'm a self-made man, self-made woman. Don't try to teach me because I've got nothing to learn. This is the song that we're singing. This is the song that we're going after. How would Paul address that? How would you address your neighbors with that as they move to bigger, faster, better, more and more and more? What is it for us? How does Jesus address that? He invites us to a better way of living. So lastly, I just want to land the plane by talking about where Paul lands the plane here in Athens talks about uprooting idolatry. And what does this mean for us? It, it's, it, it means that we choose to be recaptured by God's grace. That, we, that we're lost, we've, we've been on this road on our own, we've been trying to be the man, and we're all struggling trying to be the man or the woman, and we're lonely and we're desperate, and we need Jesus, but we're all afraid to admit it. Acts 17 says this. Here's how he, 
he, he lands his talk at the Areopagus. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined them and believed. It's the same pattern that we see when the gospel's preached. Some believe, some don't. Paul keeps moving here. So he says, God's not like you guys, but he's near you. God's not like your idols that you're crafting, but he's closer than you can imagine. You know, see, there's a difference in how to pursue people, right? Sometimes we just say, God's not like you, and we speak judgment. Judgment is part of the gospel. Mercy is also a part of the gospel, right? God's not like you, but he's close to you. God's different than what you're chasing, but he's nearer than you think. Paul proclaims this gospel that's better news than what they're going after. You know, Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote this, For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's the same thing that Paul reiterates in Romans chapter 1, that we've worshipped creation over creator. There's this better way. Now, now Jesus, what, what he also says is Jesus is going to return to judge the world. And we've said this as a church. The judgment of Jesus is such a good thing for us, guys. It's such a good thing. Why? Because when God looks at us, he sees us in Jesus. Colossians 3.3 says that, uh, that Christ, that you have died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. So by faith in Jesus, by faith in the resurrection, by belief in him, we get it all. We are his. And so we look forward to judgment because we're judged as we were perfect. That's what it means to be judged in righteousness. We're perfect. We can't wait for God to come home and declare what we already are trying to believe to know is true. That Jesus is good and we belong to him. And the Father is well pleased in the life of Jesus and therefore he's well pleased with us. So, so how do we experience this lifestyle of repentance? How do we experience this lifestyle of continuing to come back to the fact that, that we're going to blow it and we're going to believe and trust in things that can never give us what we're really looking for? I think we need to view repentance, coming back to God, as a continual pattern and rhythm in our lives. Not this one-time thing that we did back in college when we were part of that collegiate ministry. No, no, no. It's, it's every single day when we see that the idols have lifted their heads again. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We have, we're in community with others that remind us of those truths. And we're known deeply enough to share the fact that we don't have it all together. This is how we pursue this lifestyle. So my, my question to you as I, as I close here is this. When you think about this idea of, of repenting and coming back to God, or maybe coming to God for the first time, do you sense that it's God's kindness to you, like Romans 2.4 says? Or do you sense that 
that you've really blown it and you don't have it together and you really begrudge the fact that you have to repent. Because the fact that God speaks to us and He doesn't let us go our own way, like He talks about in Romans 1, is the kindness of God to bring us back to Himself. So when you think about that, do you sense God's kindness and His pleasure on your life? Whenever you, whenever you repent and you come back to God. The question, I'll, I'll end where we started. What lane are you running in? What race are you on? Are, are you chasing something that you don't even know what it is anymore? Or are you finding that God is sovereign over everything in your life and as you run, you can enjoy God. You can feel His pleasure on your life because it's all in His hands. Where are you at with that? Let me pray for us. Father, we give thanks for our time together in Your Word and for how You meet us and show us grace and You're kind to us. Lord, I pray that, uh, that You would help us to identify just the deeper idols of our hearts, the things that we trust in for ultimate satisfaction that are really just empty promises. Would you show us what those are this morning? Not, not, in a, not in a trite way, but in a real way. That we might understand our hearts a little bit better this week. Because we've identified something that's trying to be fool's gold in our hearts. Try to give us something that, that it never really can. Would you help us see that today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.